I'm going to bring this up. Hebrews, just so you know. Bible from 30,000 feet. We've had a great previous two Wednesdays with Pete and Rob sharing, uh, going through the word here. And so now we're picking up in Hebrews. And like I, I said to you, Hebrews is one of my favorite books. We got to go through this um, a number of years ago here at the church. I got to teach through this book when we were doing a, uh, I was doing a class at the Calvary Chapel Bible College. And uh, it is just such a, an awesome, fun, exciting book to go through. And I'm excited to be able to go through it here with you all tonight together. And so I hope you are settled in and ready to go. Now, have you ever second-guessed a decision? Ever second-guessed a decision? Maybe that was a decision that you came into a car lot, a used car lot. The name of the car lot was Vinny's Used Cars. And you should have known right there from the name that maybe was not the place you want to be at. But you bought a car and you drove away second-guessing, did I get myself a lemon here? Is this car going to last? Maybe you second-guessed that fourth slice of pizza that you had let alone the sixth and the seventh piece that I'm sure some of you had, as I'm sure I would have as well. And you second-guessed that decision. Maybe, like me this week, you second-guessed that decision to allow your wife to cut your hair. Yeah, that's what we did. I think she did a good job, though. So, uh, honey, if you're watching, well done. I'm not second-guessing that decision, but there might be others that might be second-guessing that decision. But I'm happy with it. But... Perhaps you have at your, in your life at one time or another, and I'm sure more than one time or another, have second-guessed a decision that you've made. Well, listen, the book of Hebrews is being written for those who have second-guessed a decision that they made in their life. Only the situation in Hebrews was not some frivolous decision. It was a matter of life or death for them. People were not sure whether they could continue on in Jesus or just go back to what they knew. Listen, I'm going to get back to that in a minute here, but let's first of all talk about the who, the what, the when, the why, the, the where, everything about Hebrews as we kind of give, uh, again, just that overview of what the book of Hebrews is about here. So Hebrews is an interesting book. It's a little different from the other New Testament epistles that we have because Hebrews begins like an essay it proceeds like a sermon, and then it ends like a letter. That's unusual compared to the other epistles that we have. Also, we don't have a specific destination or recipient of the letter as far as a geographical place or a people group. Was it going to a certain church or, or person? Another thing that is left as a mystery is the author of the book of Hebrews. So who wrote the book of Hebrews? Ultimately, we don't know. Now listen, there's been a lot of speculation given, but this goes back all the way, you know, to early church times. In fact, uh, as early as Origen, the Alexandrian church father who died about AD 255, no one knew who the writer was for sure. After careful study of the authorship of Hebrews, Origen wrote this, but who it was that really wrote the epistle, God only knows. Now, there's been a lot of speculation made over who the writer might be, suggestions such as it could have been Paul or Apollos or Barnabas, maybe Luke, maybe Clement. Others have been uh, given as possible ideas. But tonight, my friends, after much study and examination of this book, I'm here to tell you confidently who wrote the book of Hebrews, because I know. It's the Holy Spirit. 
All right? So whether we know who the physical author was, we know that this is divinely breathed, that this is God-breathed, that this is given through the Holy Spirit as every author of the Bible wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So we know that this is a book that we can depend on, stand on, count on, and it's going to be helpful for us here. Now, many have believed the author to be Paul. That's kind of, I would say, if you believe that Paul was the author of the book of Hebrews, you'd be in good company. And you'd be in good company because you'd be in my company. I've, for a long time, kind of felt, man, Paul seems like the author. But uh, I'll tell you, there is room. I, more and more, I kind of begin to go, ah, it very well could be a different author. I'm not as sure as I once was about the Pauline authorship of this book. And again, like I said, it doesn't ultimately matter. But if you believed Paul was the author, you'd be in good company. Listen, Paul opened all of his 13 epistles with a greeting, including his name. Hebrews, however, has none of that. That's some reasons why people feel Paul wasn't the author here. The literary style of Hebrews is also very different. Paul would typically quote from the Hebrew Old Testament scriptures, whereas in Hebrews, all Old Testament references are quoted from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures. Now, Apollos is you know, a strong contender for the authorship of the book. He was a Jew, and as Acts chapter 18, verse 24 tells us, he was eloquent and mighty in the scripture. So it could be Paul's. We don't know. And ultimately, I'm going to say it again. It doesn't actually matter for us. Okay, so let's move on here. But let's look at, at the, the who, or sorry, the, um, I don't even know what I, what I put there. Where? You guys can read it with me here. I can't see that. But let's look at the audience. Who the author is ultimately writing to. Because the book gets its name from the audience. He's writing this to the Hebrew people. The Jews. But more specifically, this book is being written to Jewish believers. Those who had converted to Christianity from Judaism. Now we're not sure where they exactly were geographically, but most likely these were uh, Jewish believers all you know, kind of spread out, and the author is writing to encourage them to continue on in the faith. That's why this book is being written. And that leads us to our, our why now. We've seen the, the who, we've seen the, the where, the audience, and now we see the, the why, the occasion of the writing. The author is writing to encourage the people that were questioning this move to Christianity. Now, of course, we know the church began around 33 AD, but have you ever kind of stopped to think about what that must have been like for these pioneers of the Christian faith who were leaving these former practices and traditions of Judaism behind? They were coming out of something that was all that they knew to come into something that was very brand new for them. Many of them would have been viewed as, as turncoats by their own family. Think about what it would have been like for a Jewish Christian to go home and visit his Orthodox parents on one of the holidays. Can you imagine the guilt that they would be laying on as the parents would be saying, I could just hear a parent, oh son, where did we go wrong? Why are you stirring up such controversy by following the sect of wingnuts called Christians? Haven't you heard that they drink of their leader's blood? That is crazy. That's not kosher. I mean, the, 
the, the, the conflict that would have been going on in the homes and among families for people leaving Judaism to follow Christianity. Perhaps some of you experienced something like that where a family member has shown a disapproval of leaving things that were kind of your upbringing or, or traditions. Maybe it's denominational traditions behind. Maybe you've got parents thinking, you know, we've, we never worshipped with guitars or drums before. Never would we see a pastor wearing jeans. You know, what's next? Shorts? And I mean, some people can just really get their knickers in a knot. Uh, over some of these traditions, right? We've maybe experienced that ourselves. Now, these may be some scenarios that we've had to put up with, but I'm not so sure it would hold a candle to what these new Christians were having to face in their day. Leaving Judaism was equivalent to being an apostate or, like I said, a traitor. The people lived, they breathed, and they died Judaism. They had a rich, extensive history of it. That was not just a religion they attached to their lives. This was their very life. This is what they were all about. And now with this group of Christians on the scene, the Jews were doing all they could to change their minds from converting and leaving Judaism. Now, when a Jew left the faith of their forefathers... It was often punished with one or more of the following. Disinheritance by his family, excommunication from the congregation of Israel, loss of employment, dispossession, mental harassment and physical torture, public mockery, imprisonment, martyrdom. As you can see, this would cause a lot of people to really rethink their course of action. If indeed, this newfound faith was really worth it all. Ever had those moments of a crisis of faith? Have you ever been there yourself where you've wondered, is this really worth it all? Is my faith really something to hold on to and to get me through these difficult times? Well, the book of Hebrews is being written to provide the answer for you. And the answer is a resounding yes. It is all worth it. It is all worth it to continue on holding on to Jesus. Living for Jesus and serving him is all worth it. There's nothing that you can possibly gain by giving up life in Jesus. There's nothing that will at all pay off for you by abandoning Jesus. In fact, the central theme of the book of Hebrews is this. Maybe you know it already if you've been with us years ago we went through this. The central theme of the book of Hebrews is this. Jesus is better. Say that with me at home. Jesus is better. Do you believe that? Because this is why this book is being written and we're going to see it all the way through our study here tonight. And you might be saying, well, better than what? Better than what? Well, better than whatever you can come up with, or however you want to fill in the blanks. Well, is he better than... Listen, you don't even need to finish that sentence. The answer is yes, Jesus is better. You'll always be better. Living for him, even if the world is against you, is still better. Well, let's look at the, the when of this writing. We've seen the why, and I didn't put that side up, I don't think. Again, why he's writing to encourage these believers who are questioning, moving to Christianity, the when. Now, as we go through this letter, 
we're going to see several elements of Judaism still in operation. So it's thus believed that this letter was written before 70 AD. What happened in 70 AD? That's when the Romans came in, invaded uh, Jerusalem. They sacked the temple. They destroyed it. They knocked it all down. And so there's no longer any place to carry out these, these services and sacrifices. But yet in the book of Hebrews, we see that these things seem to still be going on. So it, it's apparent that this was being written somewhere before 70 AD. Um, most likely, this is being written around 64 to 69 AD. And you see, as these Jewish believers were living out their newfound faith in Christ, they would have been constantly reminded of their heritage and history of their Jewish lineage. The temple was still active. Sacrifices were still going on. Even apostles at times, remember, as you go through the book of Acts, even apostles were coming back to perform different services or carry out different vows, even there at the temple. They were still kind of following different feasts and observances there. So there was a constant pressure for some of these Jewish believers to return to these practices. The heat was getting turned up and the message from those in Judaism was this, renounce Christ and come back to what you know or else you're going to be cut off from all that you do know. That's the pressure that these Jewish believers were under. So it's with this in mind that the author once more writes to this audience with this argument. Jesus is better. Jesus is better, as we're going to see through this book. We're going to see it going through. Jesus is better than the prophets. He's better than angels. He's better than the law. He's better than Moses. Jesus is better than than Joshua. Jesus is better than the priesthood, better than Aaron. Jesus serves in a better sanctuary. Jesus has introduced a better covenant. Jesus offers a better sacrifice. God, you see, has replaced the fixtures of Judaism with faith in Jesus now. And we see the evidence of all these themes by a couple words we see repeated throughout the book of Hebrews. The word better and the word perfect is repeated 13 times each throughout this letter. So the author is continually reminding us we have something far better in Jesus. Jesus has perfected. He is the perfect one that's come in and just completed all these things that we or that these Jews were formally holding on to. Coleridge said that Romans revealed the necessity of the Christian faith, but that Hebrews reveals the superiority of the Christian faith. He said Romans revealed the necessity of the Christian faith, whereas Hebrews revealed the superiority of the Christian faith. So here's our outline that we're going to look at as we go through this letter. We're going to see Christ superior in his person, Christ superior in his priesthood, and Christ superior in his practice. So we've got a lot to cover in this book, and, and we're going we're gonna to look to draw out the highlights and, again, key themes as we do this overview through the book of Hebrews here. So first of all, we see the author addressed a, a, a couple of things that Jesus is better than. Jesus is better than the prophets, and he's better than the angels. Look at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 with me. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in his last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person 
and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. So right off the bat, we see Jesus being declared as better than the prophets and angels. Now, these were two groups of people that were greatly revered in, in Judaism. The prophets were ones that were looked up as how as the spokespeople of God. The, these were God's instruments, whereas when God had a word to share with his people, he would speak through the prophets. And their message carried great weight and authority as prophets of God. So they were greatly looked up to by Jewish people and in Judaism. And then we see also that angels were also held in, held in high regard. These were the agent, agents that God used to, to work through and carry out um, his work through history, oftentimes. They were instrumental in the giving of the law. They were woven into the fabric of the curtains there in the tabernacle. There in the Holy of Holies, on either side of the Ark of the Covenant were these great cherubim on either side there. And so... Statues of these angels. And the things of the tabernacle and temple were to be a model of the things in heaven. We'll see that later on in, in Hebrews. So as the priest went into the tabernacle or temple, he was reminded of this continual angelic presence that surrounded the throne of heaven as what he was ministering in was a picture of. So angels were very prominent, even in Judaism. But see what the author is saying is, listen, Jesus is better then all of these things. The prophets spoke periodically the revelation of God, but Jesus was a constant, consistent revelation of not just God's word, but of who God is. Look at what we, we read there. That he is the very brightness of his glory and the express image of his person in verse 3. Jesus reveals the very person of of who God is, the very image of who God is. And angels were a, a representation of heaven, but Jesus, again, he came and revealed heaven, not just a representation, the express image of God. And Jesus has obtained a more excellent name than they. Jesus has been called Son. That's a more excellent name. Angels have been referred to as the sons of God in Scripture, but no angel had been personally called Son. The writer quotes from the Old Testament scriptures firmly held in Judaism to back up that statement. For to which, in verse 5, for to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I've begotten you. So he quotes from Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. Interestingly, the book of Hebrews has the most Old Testament quotations in it, second, I should say, in the New Testament, next to the book of Revelation. So it's just packed with, with Old Testament scriptures that are, again, backing up what God has said all along, pointing to the person of Jesus Christ. Now, throughout Hebrews, the author gives five warning statements. Five warning statements here. Don't drift. Don't doubt. Don't decrease. Don't disobey. Don't deny. And so interjecting throughout all these points of showing and revealing how Jesus is better than all these various elements and points of, of Judaism, he interjects with these warnings. Listen, guys, don't drift away from the person of Jesus. 
Remember, he's writing to these Jewish believers who had turned from Judaism, come to Christ, but now we're starting to second-guess that decision. Did I make the right call? Because I thought it'd be a lot easier. There's a lot of pressure coming against me here now because of leaving Judaism. So the author writes these warnings saying, don't drift away. Don't doubt. Don't decrease in your belief. Don't disobey. And don't deny Jesus. All of these connect to how they needed to receive Jesus and remain in Jesus. It's a good warning and a good word for us. Here's the first warning warning in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. It says this, Therefore, we must give the most the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast in every transgression and disobedience, received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? So the people had trusted the word that was given by the angels, But how much more they needed to receive the word given by Jesus. Because, as we see here, it's a greater salvation. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? It's a better salvation given to us. It's the only salvation. Do you see? That's what the author is saying. There's no other way to be saved. It's only found in Jesus. And these Jews needed to remain in him in order to be saved and escape the consequences of life Apart from Jesus, don't drift away. Don't begin to hold on to Jesus, but then begin just to kind of slowly get pulled back in the current of Judaism. If ever you've been out in the ocean, I love being out in the ocean. I love going out, surfing whenever I get a chance to, which isn't much, but I love it. And it's interesting because you can be out there and you're having a good time, but little do you know, oftentimes that you're getting pulled in, a, in an undercurrent. And suddenly you paddle back to the beach and all of a sudden you're like, Where's my stuff? Where'd it go? And you realize, man, you just drifted like 500 yards from where you originally were without even realizing it. And these people need to be careful that they weren't getting pulled in the undercurrent of Judaism, of, of the family's pressure, of people saying, listen, we've got everything we need right here. We've got the temple. We've got the sacrifices. What do you have? Come on back. Just come on back and hang out with us. They be careful they weren't going to get drifted and, and pulled away in that current of Judaism. Continuing on in verse 8 of chapter 2, we read this. You have put all things in subjection under his feet, for in that he put all in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him, but now we do not yet see all things put under him. But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Everything that was made was given for man to have dominion over. That's how God designed it. We may not, have, we may not see it that way just yet in this world we live in. We're not quite there. But what are we to do when we see things not in, in order or the way it should be? What are we to do? We're to look to Jesus. The author says, but we see Jesus. That's something to underline in your Bible. Because it's a constant, uh, you know, coming back to point that we need to, again, refocus on when we look at the things going on around us that can trouble us and think, man, everything just seems to be so out of order. Yes, but, but we see Jesus. 
who is better and greater and who is still at work in all these things. Look to Jesus, my friends, because in him we find the hope and peace that we need to persevere because we're going to one day be at rest in him. And that's what the author wants his readers to see here. Though the world looks anything like it's under the dominion of man and in the order that God has designed it to be, it will one day be brought under complete subjection to the ultimate man, which is Jesus Christ. Everything is centering around him. So hold on to him. Look to him. See Jesus. I pray that tonight, where you are, you are seeing Jesus more clearly and more dearly in your life. So we see that Jesus is better than the prophets. He's better than angels. But now next, in chapter 3, we move on to another couple subjects that were pretty big in Judaism. We're going to see that Jesus is better than Moses and better than Joshua. See, as prominent as prophets and angels were in Judaism, Moses was like the grand poobah, right? He was their hero. He was the one that brought deliverance and freedom out of bondage from Egypt. It was through Moses that the law was passed down. Exodus 33 verse 11 even says, So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. So, I mean, they looked to Moses as like, man, this is our guy. This is the one. This is our leader. But look at what the author points out about Moses. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. We're going to read a few verses here. It says this, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house, a servant, or as a servant, for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward, but Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. So we see here that Moses and Jesus were both faithful, right? That's what the author is pointing out. They were both faithful people. Moses was faithful in all his house. And that's speaking of the house of God that's made up of the people of God, just as we saw in 1 Peter chapter 2 that we're being fitted together. It's that spiritual house, right? Now Moses was a faithful leader. He was a good ambassador for God for the most part. But he was just a part of the house, whereas Jesus is the actual builder, the architect of the house. The builder is always going to have more glory than the house itself, right? The builder is always going to have more glory than the house itself. We've just built a house. We're thankful for it. But if I'm standing there with the builder and I just start to go, oh my goodness, our builder's name is Roy. He's a dear, he's a dear brother in the Lord. I said, Roy, look at this house. Isn't it just grand? Isn't it just great? Look at how amazing this... He's going, I built the thing. I know. And maybe a little credit my way. Now he's a humble guy. He's not going to be asking for that. But we're going to look to the builder and go, wow, great job there. See, Jesus is the builder of the house. And to, to add to that fact, Moses was seen as a servant of the house. Look at verse 5. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant. 
See, Moses was just a servant. But Jesus, it says in verse 6, is a son over his own house. Hey, you don't, you, you don't have to be a scholar to understand that a son always has greater benefits and privileges than a servant. A servant doesn't usurp the authority or the privileges of a son, a child. And Jesus is the son of his own house. The argument being made is, why not be with the one who built the house and brings greater benefits? Jesus is, what everybody? Better. He's better. Why sit there and lift up Moses and praise Moses and follow Moses and the law of Moses? Why follow those things when you got Jesus, who's the son of his own house? You got greater benefits and privileges. Jesus is better. But you see, you can't have it both ways. You need to hold on to Jesus and abide. And that's what the, what the author writes there at the end of verse 6. Whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Listen, it doesn't matter how you start. You might have started off real well with Jesus, but maybe you've been in a point of drifting. Drifting maybe to former things. Holding on to inferior things. The key for you is how you finish. Are you going to finish strong with Jesus? Are you holding on tightly to Jesus to the end? Because that's how you get through it all. He will see you through, but you need to abide in him. You need to hold on to him. Your faith needs to remain in him. Now, we also see in chapter 3 and 4 that Moses and Joshua weren't able to provide the rest that was promised for them. Look at Hebrews 3, verse 16. It says there in verse 16 of chapter 3, For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now, with whom was he angry? Forty years. Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. So the author reminds them of how when they came out of Egypt, they were wandering through the wilderness. It was to be a short journey from Egypt into the promised land. But what happened? They had to spend 40 years in the wilderness to let that generation die out. Why? Because of unbelief. Unbelief. An entire generation that saw the wonders of God, the miracles provided for them in leading them out of, out of Egypt and providing for them miraculously in the wilderness, they saw all these things and yet they still responded with unbelief at just coming into a new land. Now, perhaps there were some in the bunch that thought, oh, God could do it. But maybe they went along with the majority. Maybe they went along with the, the majority of the people that were saying, nah, can't be done. There's giants in that land. Now we're going to get squashed like grasshoppers. This isn't going to be good for us. And many followed along in that unbelief. We see that happening time and time again where people just began to follow along with the complaining and murmuring. Perhaps some of these that thought maybe God could do it also thought, well, perhaps they can't all be wrong. 
Maybe there's something to it. Maybe they're onto something. But the case with this generation in the wilderness shows that the majority can be wrong. The majority can be absolutely wrong. And it's a word for these Jewish believers that the author of Hebrews is writing to because many of these Jewish believers might have been thinking, well, all these people that are telling me how weird it is to be a Christian, how wrong it is to leave Judaism, can they all be wrong? Is there something to that? And maybe they began to get pulled back because of the popular vote. The, the, the majority of the thinking. But here's the thing. Now, when you follow God in His way, you're never in the minority. Because God plus one makes the majority. In fact, God makes the majority. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need you. But He brings us along to say, hey, if you want to be a part of the majority, follow me. Too often we can think, I'm going to go along with the, with the crowd. But these Jewish believers were missing out in thinking if they go back, maybe things will be okay. They can't all be wrong, can they? Yeah, the wilderness shows us they can. And they had to pay the price because of that unbelief. Now, some may have looked to Joshua now and thought, oh, he's another key leader in Israel's history. And, and, and they... They figure he's the guy that you know, really provided for our, our hope, our victory, for a new territory. He did what Moses couldn't do in bringing them into the promised land. But notice this, even he couldn't deliver fully. Look at Hebrews 4, verse 8. Hebrews 4, verse 8 says, For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. <coughs> and in Hebrews 4.12, then we have this well-known and great verse. This great verse on the word of God that I'm sure many of you know and heard many times. We've got it circled, underlined in our Bibles. And it's all linked to this area of unbelief and being held back from the promises of God. Now, not, not even Joshua could bring them in to the fullness of the rest. In other words, God had something greater for them. Joshua is just going to be a picture of it all. It was ultimately going to be seen and fulfilled in Jesus. And so because of the unbelief that many had, here we see the working of the word of God that is seeking to come in and break through these areas of unbelief if we allow it. Let's look at that verse together. We'll start in verse 11 of Hebrews 4, verse 11. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. See, the word of God has the ability, because it's living and it's active, and has the ability to come in and pierce right in to our inner core and begin to reveal those areas that are not a God, even the very thoughts and the intents of the heart, the things that we're thinking about, the things that we're pondering just in our heart. The Bible has a way of coming in and bringing that conviction and, and cutting away the things that are not of God. Are we allowing the Word of God to do that? 
I, I, I pray and I trust that daily you are having that time in the word of God. Because here's the beauty of it all, is that the word of God is living. It's active. As we saw in Peter, it's like that, that seed that, that gives life for us. It's not imperishable seed. Or it's not perishable seed. It's that living word of God that comes in, desires to bring fruit. But it also, like that double-edged sword, comes in and cuts away the things that are not of God. The things that might cause us to walk in unbelief or unfruitfulness or, or follow in sin's path. The word of God comes in and speaks to us and reveals those things. Allow the word of God to do that. And you can't allow the word of God to do that unless you're spending time in the word of God and getting the word of God in you. Oh, I pray that you are doing that and experiencing the blessing and joy of just letting the word of God do its work in you. Well, we've seen that Jesus is better than the prophets. He's better than angels. He's better than Moses, their great leader. He's better than Joshua. Here we see now, as we continue on, at the end of chapter 4 and all the way through chapter 7, we see that Jesus is better than the priesthood. See, in the old system under Jewish law, God appointed priests to be the go-between. They were to represent God to the people, but they were then to, again, represent the people before God. They were the ones that offered up sacrifices to God for the people, but the problem was they were sinful people. The priests were not a perfect people. They were flawed. Look at Hebrews 4, verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Isn't that a wonderful promise to hold on to here tonight, my friends? Isn't that Just gold for us here today. You see, Jesus has passed through the heavens for us. He is pure. He is without sin. And he's able to be our go-between in a better way than any priest ever could have. And now, we have the privilege through Jesus, who now stands as our great high priest, to come boldly to the throne of grace. You see, only one person could go into the place that they saw as where the presence of God dwelt. And that was in the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest could go into that place one day of the year, the day of atonement, Yom Kippur. Nobody could do it. Nobody could, you know, go into the temple. Only the the priest could minister around the temple. The high priest could go in. and, And even then, only the high priest could go in one day of the year into the Holy of Holies. But now Jesus has gone to the very holiest of places there in heaven. And he's given us access. He's given us access to the very throne of God. Throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus is so much better than the priesthood, than all these things that have been set up and established. Jesus is far better. Now, some may have begun to argue that Jesus wasn't from the right tribe. 
hold on, only the, the tribe of Levi could serve as priests. Only the sons of Aaron could be the high priests. Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. He doesn't fit. It's not a good match. He, he can't be a priest. But the author quotes from one of David's messianic psalms now where God promised that the Messiah would be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Quotes from Psalm 110, verse 4. And this is quoted here in Hebrews 5, verse 6. Hebrews 5, 6 says, He also says, in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So the point is that God has already established a priestly order outside of the Levitical system of the law. And so Jesus rightly fits in being able to be our high priest. Now, the old system was flawed, but Jesus ushers in a better system. Jump over with me to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. We're going to pick it up in verse 18. Moving along, lots to cover here. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 18, says this. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, the Lord has sworn sworn, and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. And also, verse 23, also there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing, right? But he, Jesus, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, and then for the people's. For this he did once for all, when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weaknesses, But the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the son who has been perfected forever. See, it's all summed up for us right there. Jesus covers it all. He is better. Better than anything that they could have moved back to. Better than anything they could have had as traditions, as an upbringing. Jesus is better than all those things. And not only is he a better priest, but his ministry is far superior than that of the priesthood. Why? Because he ministers in a better sanctuary, as we're going to see here in chapter 8, and he ministers a better covenant. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. Now, this is the main point of the things we are saying. So that's important, right? The author just says, hey, listen, here's the main point. Let's see what that is. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not men. See, the priests who served in the tabernacle and in the temple 
They ministered in an inferior environment. They had an incredible structure. There was glorious things about it. No doubt. We're not taking anything away from it. But, but they were all just to be a shadow of that which was in heaven already. And as the priest came up to the altar, it was to be a picture of the complete and final sacrifice of Jesus as they went into the holy place. There, there stood the lampstand, a picture of Jesus, the light of the world. There was a table of showbread. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. There was the altar of incense. And Jesus here, we see Hebrews 7 verse 25, ever lives to make intercession for us. Jesus, do you understand that? Jesus has gone to heaven where he is praying for you, interceding for you. And then past the veil, inside the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat on top. Through Jesus, we've now been given mercy and grace and given access now. Boldness to enter in. There was also all the sacrifices being offered up, which we'll get to those parallels in the next chapter. But see, many of the Jews were placing their confidence in what they had before them, what they're seeing all around them. They were turning back to these things that they could see, smell, and touch. These were visual, vivid things that they could grab a hold of and realize, well, this is what I want to kind of put my life around. Why would they want to give that up for something that was about faith and trust? But all these things that they were a part of was simply a shadow of what was true. Jesus served in the superior sanctuary. And he ministered a better covenant. Just jump down to verse 6 with me of chapter 8. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. Let me keep reading verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. See, some of these Jews might have been thinking, Why do we even need a new covenant? We've got our covenant already. I mean, God gave this through angels, passed it down to Moses, who gave it to us. I mean, we have a great heritage with this. Why do we need anything new? This is, this is good. Now, in actuality, there was nothing wrong with that covenant, but there was something wrong with the people of the covenant. That's the issue. Because notice what, what it says in verse 8, finding fault with them. See, the writer makes sure to say, listen, God didn't have, a, didn't have a problem with the covenant. He had a problem with the people. They were unable to keep it. They were unable to follow it. See, the law was based on performance, and the problem was in, hum, in humanity's inability to keep it. So this new covenant now, as it says in verse 6 of chapter 8, this new covenant is established on better promises. Because it's a promise that God gives. It's a promise that is unconditional that God establishes for us. See, the old covenant tried to regulate conduct. It was do this, don't do that, do this, do that. It was just do-do. And if you didn't do it, you would find yourself in do-do. I mean, it was not a good thing for these people. But instead of controlling conduct, the new covenant changes character. 
Instead of trying to control conduct, now the new covenant comes in and changes character. The new covenant brings about a new heart and a spiritual rebirth. Under the old covenant, their sins were covered, but never cleansed fully. But now through Jesus Christ, their sins are removed and no longer remember. Look at verse 12. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. That's the promise of the new covenant. That's why the new covenant is established under better promises or on better promises. So Jesus is better than the priesthood. He brings in a better sanctuary. He's in the heavens interceding first. He brings in a better covenant. And next we see here in chapter 9 that Jesus, Jesus' sacrifice is far better than any Old Testament sacrifice. Check out chapter 9, verse 11. Hebrews 9, verse 11. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and cows, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, offered himself without spot, to God, cleanse now your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. That's important. Notice what it says there. Once for all. Jesus came to be that once for all sacrifice. And his sacrifice, his shed blood, has done for us what no amount of animal sacrifices could ever possibly do. And it took a sacrifice in order for sins to be atoned for. Look at what it says in verse 22 of chapter 9. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. There is no forgiveness. There's no cleansing. There's no removal of sins without the shedding of blood. So a sacrifice is needed. Some people think, well, my good works is going to atone for my sins. Me being a good person is going to atone for my sins. But the Bible makes it clear, my friends, that blood, a sacrifice, is needed. And Jesus has become that complete, perfect sacrifice for us. Let me just say this here. If you're watching tonight, you tuned in, maybe you don't go to this church, maybe you don't go to any church, And you're a person that is living their life thinking, well, I'm just trusting that when I die, I'm going to go to heaven because I've done my best to be a good person. I hope my good works are outweighing any bad works. Can I just share with you that we need something more than that? Because our good works is never enough. My good works is never enough. Your good works will never be enough. That's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus had to come and die on a cross. Because blood needed to be shed. A life had to be given up because the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. But Jesus came and he died for you. 
God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus died on a cross to pay the penalty for your sin so that he could atone, cover, cleanse, and remove your sins so that you could now stand before God in Christ's righteousness. But here's what you need to do. You need to simply confess your sin and turn to Jesus and put your trust in him as your Lord and Savior, as the one that provides the forgiveness of sin for you. And live your life for him. Follow him. If you've not done that and you've been hoping in other things, I, I, I encourage you, turn to Jesus tonight. Right where you are. Ask Jesus to forgive you of your sin and invite him into your heart. Because he's come to give you life. He died and he rose again. And he's coming again one day. One day soon. Are you ready? Receive him as your savior. And know that in him, you become born again. A new life. The oldest passage of old, all things have become new. A new creation. New life and eternal life. Receive Jesus today. Continuing on here in chapter 10. Look at what it says in verse 1. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, Make those who approach perfect, for then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshippers once purified would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. See, all the thousands, millions of sacrifices that took place could not do what Jesus has done for us. Jesus had to come and do that. The law was just a shadow of those things to come. None of those sacrifices could ever make one person perfect. It goes on to say in verse 10 of chapter 10. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins, But this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifices for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Do you see that there? You know that in the tabernacle or in the temple, you know what wasn't in there? Chairs. There were no chairs in tabernacle or temple. There was no place for the priest to sit down and just put up his feet, even if it was for a five-minute coffee break. There's no place to do that because it says there in in verse um, 11, every priest stands ministering daily. See, the work continued on. The priests were constantly busy. There was no rest under the law. So it is for the person who is trying to be right with God by observing the law or by living a legalistic life, by trying to do things, there will never be any rest for that person. Because we can't do it ourselves. You'll always be working and striving, but never experiencing any rest or peace. But Jesus, notice what it says there in verse 12. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus is in a position of rest. That's what it means there. He sat down signifying the work is done. It's complete. Just like he said on the cross, it is finished. The work is done. There's nothing that we can add any longer to it. 
And Jesus desires to bring us into a place of rest. Resting in that finished work of salvation. These Jewish believers who are contemplating, second-guessing their decision to follow Jesus, the authors proclaiming very loudly and clearly here, Jesus has done it all. And if you leave him, there's no longer any place for sacrifice. That's what was meant in Hebrews 6, a, a difficult chapter to go through, and we kind of just jumped over that. But the author is writing there in Hebrews 6 to just signify, listen, there's no longer any place of, uh, of repentance found outside of Jesus. It's only in Jesus. He's done it all. And he's done it all so that you can rest in him. So that you, have to, you, you no longer have to strive and try to earn your way. Now you receive it freely and you rest in him. Are you resting tonight in Jesus? Are you finding that peace in him? Is your heart stilled and comforted because of who Jesus is and what he's done for you? Oh, I pray that it is. Now, let me just close out that chapter and then we're going we're gonna to be wrapping it up very quickly. I know we've got like three more chapters to go, but we're going to just run through those, okay? Um, so stay with me here, all right? Look around your living room, wherever you are. Make sure everybody's awake right now, okay? All right. Um, look at verse 35 of chapter 10. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. That word again, continue on. Hold on to Jesus. Don't turn back. Hold on, because the just shall live by faith. That's something that Paul quotes in his writings. He quotes in Romans. He quotes in um, Galatians. And if Paul wrote this, well, he quoted here in Hebrews as well. The just shall live by faith. The favorite verse there. The just shall live by faith. But uh, listen, there's no greater life than the one that's lived for Christ. But it is one that requires faith. We come to him in faith and we abide in him by faith. And so we come now to one of those great chapters of the, of the Bible. It's been called the Hall of Faith or as I like to refer to that as the chapter that leaves me without excuse. Because we see some great examples of people that have had to continue on in faith, have had to endure great challenges and difficulties and yet persisted on in faith. Leaves me without an excuse. And it's a blessed trip through this chapter to look at many that have gone before us and who have lived that life of faith. Warren Wearsby said this, the best way to grow in faith is to walk with the faithful. And that's what we get to do in this chapter. We get to see real life examples and testimonies of people who did courageous things, who risked much and were rewarded greatly for stepping out in faith. And this is very pertinent for that audience, again, that the writer of Hebrews is is writing to these people that were questioning their own decisions and commitment to God. There's two words repeated many times throughout this chapter. By faith. By faith. And in so doing, the author is revealing that it has always required faith to follow God and to serve Him. These new believers were not doing anything different or new. They're following along exactly what all their, their you know, people before them 
All these great men and women of faith have done all along. They've had to trust God and believe God. Believe what was not seen before them. It's by faith that we live for God. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, for by it the elders obtained a good testimony. And that's what these people need to do. They might have been going, but I see all these things around me that I have in Judaism. Jesus, however, that's a little bit more difficult. It's a life of faith. But faith is what's needed. Verse 6 says, but without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a reward of those who diligently seek him. Oh, may we be diligently seeking him. Take some time tonight, tomorrow, to read to this chapter and just see these great examples of men and women that have persisted on by faith. And they've had to endure some difficulties, but God bless them. And they stand here as great heroes and great examples for us. Chapter 12. Now one thing that lends credence to Paul being the author of Hebrews is that Paul loved to use sports analogies. And we see another one in chapter 12. Paul was a sports junkie and and loved to use these sports metaphors. And we have one right here in chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of of Christ, or the throne of God, sorry. Listen, we've seen here in this outline the superiority of Christ's person, the superiority of Christ's priesthood. Now we're looking at the superiority of Christ's practice because we're seeing here that living for him is that work of faith. Now we're seeing here that there's this exhortation to hope. All right? Hope. Keep going on. Keep running. Throw off everything that hinders you. For these Jewish believers, boy, that was a good word for them right now because they were getting tripped up. They were getting tripped up in the former things, the inferior things. Paul, or sorry, the author says, throw those things aside. Lay aside everything that might trip you up and run, it says, with endurance, the race that says before us, doing what? Looking unto Jesus. Why? Because that's what it's all about. It's running with him, for him, looking to him because he's the beginning point, the end point. He's the start of the race. He's the finish of the race. He's everything in between. So let's continue running, looking unto him, the author and finisher of our faith. And notice this. The author says, listen, he endured much. He despised the shame of the cross and he's now sat down the right hand. These Jewish believers might have been thinking, man, I, I just can't endure all the shame, the looks, the, the taunts, the people saying that I don't belong any longer. The author says, Jesus endured it all. In fact, what does it say? Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and despising the shame. How could Jesus do it with joy? Because he knew what it would result in. And for these believers, they needed to continue on with Jesus. Despise the shame. And do so with the joy, knowing of what it's going to result in. Life forever. Life eternal. In and with Jesus. What's tripping you up tonight? What's holding you back? What's getting you down 
Look unto Jesus tonight. Look to him. Find hope in him. Keep running that race with endurance. Because it's all going to be worth it. Why? Because Jesus is better. He's better than anything that you might be encountering right now. And it's all going to be worth it. It's all going to be worth it. So we see chapter 11 as we look at this Christ's superiority in his practice. Exhortation of faith, chapter 11. Exhortation of hope, chapter 12. Chapter 13. And exhortation to love. Faith, hope, and love. We end on love here. Look at what it says in chapter 13, verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them. Those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. Now that would have been huge for these Jewish believers here who are being excommunicated from synagogues, you know, just kind of disfellowshipped from their own families. The church, however, was to be a sanctuary for them. The church was to be a a place of refuge. That's why the author says, let it be a place where you can come and receive love one with another. Let brotherly love continue. It's already a part of them through Jesus. Let it continue on. Show that support for one another. We're to be that to one another as the church as well. Letting brotherly love continue. Coming alongside and being hospitable with one another. Entertaining, helping, encouraging each other. That's what we're to be as the church. May we find just that place of sanctuary together. And I long for the time that we can gather together. Listen, my friends. I am so done with this empty sanctuary business. Let's be praying together for this to end soon, for us to be able to gather together. As Hebrews 10 tells us, boy, we skipped over it, doesn't it? But let us not forsake the assembling of the brethren, where we can come together and continue to stir one another up to love and good works. That's right there in Hebrews 10, and how we need that, how I am missing that. But I pray, in whatever way you can, be doing that still with the church, whether it's on the phone, a video chat, just continue to encourage one another, Let's be loving each other. We need to be doing that. And I'm longing for the day when we can do that in person. Oh, I'll be praying for that. I miss you guys. I really do. Chapter 13, verse 5. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. Remember those who rule over you, who have, uh, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. These are great words to end on here tonight. Jesus doesn't change. Hold on to him. These Jewish believers have gone through change. They're questioning it. But Jesus is consistent. And he promises to be with you and to stay with you. And so these Jewish believers are being told, stay with him because Jesus will stay with you. Regardless of what family and friends might do, Jesus is with you. And he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen to that. Let's pray, okay? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great book that we get to look at here tonight and just for all of the things that we can glean from and learn from and that one singular theme and truth here tonight, Jesus is better. Jesus, we proclaim 
right here, right now, right wherever we are. Jesus, you are better. And we thank you that you've come and you've made our lives better. And though right now we're going through difficult days, we're going through hard times, and yet that promise for us, that you'll never leave us nor forsake us, how we need to be content in you, because you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. You're unchanging, Lord. You never go back on your word. You never change your word. You're dependable. And so may we hold on to you and may we continue in you, Lord, knowing that whatever we might face, Jesus, you are still better and it will all be worth it. Until you come again, Jesus, we keep looking to you, the author and the finisher of our faith. So we pray this now in your name. Amen. Amen. Everybody, thank you for joining us. Listen, we're going to let that live stream just kind of hang out for a little bit here. Greet one another on that uh, comment section if you can and just send a shout out, a hi. If we can pray for you in any way, just go ahead and write that in the comment section, your prayer request, and we can lift that up in prayer um, together and others can see and be praying for you. So hang out, uh, greet one another there, and we'll shut the live stream down in maybe about uh, five Uh, minutes or so all right lord bless you guys we'll be back here sunday 10 o'clock look forward to seeing you all again then as we pick it up in first peter chapter four all right lord bless you guys